Conflict has been around a while. We only have to get three, three chapters into the story of Scripture to see it crop up. There's a guy, and there's a girl, and they eat some forbidden fruit, and when God finds them out, the guy blames the girl, the girl blames a snake, and God rightfully blames them all. Now, pretty soon, this guy and this girl, they have some children. And when the oldest two boys grow up, the older gets jealous and kills the younger. And from that first guy and from that first girl come the eight billion people on the planet today, all caught up in this thing we know as conflict. If God were running for president, we'd want to ask him if he had a plan for that. And it turns out he does. This morning, we are going to continue on with our series on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And last week, Father Bob uh, preached to us from the end of chapter 3, and so this morning we begin chapter 4. Now, there are so many different things that Paul tries to address in this last quarter of the letter that what I decided to do, rather than pushing through it all quickly, was to just slow it down and to give ourselves the proper time to ruminate on what he says. And so today, we're actually just going to look at three verses. I don't do that very frequently, but today I felt like it was quite appropriate. I'm going to read these verses as we go along today, and I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, if you will. We'll begin with Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Well, the first thing I want us to notice is how affectionate Paul is being in this one sentence. He is expressing his sincere love for these believers, and it's not the first time we've seen this in the book of Philippians. As I said at the beginning of the series, uh, the church at Philippi seems to be Paul's favorite church, as it were. He says, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved, who wouldn't want to hear words like these from others, especially if they're from those who lead you? When Paul says, my brothers, the Greek word here is Adelphoi, and in its context, it applies to the entire church community, and so we should understand it as brothers and sisters. And from this, I want to just point out it how unique it is that the New Testament has this emphasis on followers of Christ as a family. Becoming a child of God automatically knits you into a family of brothers and sisters whose love for one another is supposed to be stronger than any bond of friendship. That's what Paul is modeling for us here. And to these beloved brothers and sisters, Paul gives them this exhortation in verse 1. He says, stand firm. Stand firm in what? You see, standing firm isn't in and of itself a virtue. We can stand firm in ignorance. We can stand firm in error. We can stubbornly refuse to change when change is needed. And so Paul makes it clear where they should stand firm, in the Lord. 
Stand firm in the Lord. Now, why is he telling them this? Well, at the beginning of verse 1, there was an important word, therefore. And so to know why they should stand firm, we must look back to what Paul has just said at the end of chapter 3 in verses 20 to 21, where he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Essentially what Paul is saying is because of the great promise of the gospel, Christ's coming and our future transformation, we must now stand firm thus in the Lord. And so chapter 4 begins with this impassioned exhortation from Paul to his beloved brothers and sisters. And then in verse 2, there's this abrupt change of tone and content. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now often when Paul is about to offer an admonishment or a rebuke, he first reminds the believers of his heart for them. Now that's what Paul has done in verse 1 by expressing his affection for them. He reminds them how he feels for them, the bonds that they share, and then he delivers the words that they need to hear. It's not unlike Mary Poppins. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Well, here in verse 2, we find out why Paul has been so sweet with his words. There are two specific people who need a dose of good medicine. Paul turns his attention to two women in the church, one Euodia and one Syntyche, and his rebuke to them is to agree in the Lord. In other words, to put an end to their open conflict. Now, we're going to learn just a little bit more about these women in verse 3, but for now, let's just talk about what their conflict was. Actually, we have no idea. We have no idea what these two women were quarreling about. Paul did not describe it for us in this letter or any other. Anything we might offer is pure speculation. However, there are several things we can know about the nature of the conflict due to the fact that Paul doesn't describe what the conflict is, but yet that he does mention it in this letter. The first thing we can know about the nature of the conflict is that it was public to the whole congregation. Paul didn't need to describe what the conflict was because everybody knew what it was already. When Epaphroditus brought this letter back with him to Philippi, what would have happened is that one of the leaders in the church would have read it aloud in front of the entire congregation gathered. So just imagine what it would have been like when the reader got to this verse, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Two heads would have shot up with eyes as big as golf balls. That would have been really embarrassing. Really embarrassing to be called out in front of the entire congregation, which leads to the second thing we know. Their conflict was significant enough to require church discipline. The New Testament gives us examples of when church discipline should occur. There are times when it's necessary because of false doctrine, and there are times when it's necessary for immoral behavior. But here we have another example of another kind of conduct, divisiveness. 
We might not often think of that as so serious of an infraction, but Scripture says otherwise. The third thing we know is that Paul doesn't take a side in their conflict. He says very purposefully, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. He uses the Greek word parakalo, entreat or plead with, before Euodia and before Syntyche, which would have been odd grammatically speaking. And in doing so, it becomes clear that Paul is being as even-handed as he can be in his rebuke. The fourth thing we know is that their conflict was not about the gospel. If it were, Paul would have named the false teaching and called the erring person to repent. We see Paul do this in his other epistles. In fact, we saw Paul do this in chapter 3 when he called the heretical Judaizers dogs. So the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche, whatever it is, it's not doctrinal in nature, but it's personal. The final thing we know is that their conflict was not going to be resolved on human terms, but in the Lord. The phrase, in the Lord, is commonly used by Paul. There are nine examples of that in Philippians alone. And when we see Paul use this phrase, here's what he's trying to communicate. He's trying to describe the kind of Christian behavior that does not come from within ourselves. It doesn't come from within the human heart. It comes in the Lord. It comes from Christ himself. In other words, the power for resolving this conflict was not going to come from the reasonableness of Euodia or of Syntyche, but from the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is because of Christ that Paul expects Euodia and Syntyche to put into practice the things which he's been preaching in this letter, especially in chapter 2. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then finally, in verse 3, Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. We may not see it right away, but here we get a surprise. We, we find out that these two women are not just members of the congregation, but core leaders in it. Paul says they have labored side by side with him in the gospel. That's not something Paul says about everyone. Yodia and Syntyche are on Paul's short list along with only one other person who gets named Clement, who was evidently also a prominent leader in Philippi. And so, again, Paul reminds Yodia and Syntyche of what they share and what sincere affection he has for them and they have had for him. But let us just take a moment to consider what that says, what that means about Yodia and Syntyche. It means that they're supposed to be spiritually mature. 
It means that they're supposed to be a model for other believers. And it means that they're supposed to be able to resolve their own conflicts. They haven't. They haven't done it. And so at the beginning of verse 3, Paul directs his attention to one other person in particular who he calls true companion. And this is a bit mysterious. We, we do not know who this person is. But what is clear about this individual is that Paul wants him or her to be a mediator. To help Yodia and Syntyche to work through their conflict until they can, in fact, agree in the Lord. This conflict was significant enough that it was visible to and had an impact on the entire congregation, especially because of their roles as leaders. And so, for Paul, it was no longer a private matter. It was something that had to be addressed within the context of the whole church family. And so because Paul knows how critical the unity of the congregation is, we see Paul rebuke these leaders publicly and call others in the congregation to ensure that they resolve their conflict, to make sure they agree in the Lord. Back in September of last year, my dad taught a series at the gathering on resolving conflict. And the framework for his series was this epistle to the Philippians. Now, most of us would not think of conflict as being particularly prominent when we think of this book of Philippians. If we were to think of an epistle in which conflict was featured, we might think of Galatians or 1 Corinthians or Philemon. But truth be told, a large part of the context of Philippians is, in fact, conflict. That is the reason why the themes of unity and humility are so prevalent. If the church at Philippi was so good at these things, Paul might not have needed to mention them. Paul is reminding the believers of what it looks like to imitate Jesus so that they'll put off the selfishness and they'll put off the divisions that keep them from the love of God and from the love of others. Now, of course, believers nowadays, we don't have this problem anymore. We've had 2,000 years to learn from those who came before us, and so no more conflict happens, right? Adam and Eve's problem is Euodia and Syntyche's problem is our problem. Despite being redeemed by Jesus, despite having the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, Christians still have conflicts for all sorts of reasons. We're selfish, and we want to get our own way. We're more interested in our needs than the needs of others. We're spiritually immature. We are only willing to see things from our perspective. We're concerned with worldly matters, not eternal ones. We're envious of others, and we compete with them. We make minor things into major things. We're contentious. We're unwilling to forgive. And we have an enemy, Satan, whose delight it is to incite conflict within the people of God in order to keep them from fulfilling the first and second great commandment and the great commission.
And these selfish propensities within us create conflict in our relationships with others. We might argue about how to interpret Scripture. We might disagree about how to apply Scripture. We might divide ourselves up into factions based upon any of our differences. We might clash over who should be in charge. We might dispute about what direction we should go. We might quarrel about where money should be spent. We might bicker about what book to study. We might squabble about what songs to sing or how to sing them. And as the joke goes, we might go to war over the color of the carpet. And in our conflict, whatever the cause, we get sucked into a swirl of sinful behavior, rehearsing what was said to us and what was done to us, growing angry in our disagreements, thinking hurtful thoughts, speaking unkind words, dreaming up the perfect comeback, grumbling and complaining about others, recruiting others to our position. I've seen more conflict and more opportunities for conflict in my ministry here at Living Faith in the last four months than I have at any other time in the last three years. I think there's a good chance that in your own life during this season, you've seen an uptick in conflict as well. Why is that? Why is it that conflict bubbles up, especially in a time like this? Life is difficult now because we're tired and emotionally drained, because we're confused, because we're lonely, because our fuses are short, because we face unique challenges as a church, because our culture is in turmoil, because our country is in conflict, and because our enemy is hard at work. And as we experience these hardships, what tends to happen is that we increase our sensitivity to our own needs, while at the same time we decrease our sensitivity to the needs of others. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that living faith is somehow in a bunch of conflict and that conflict is widespread. That's not the case. But when I chose to preach through the book of Philippians back in April, I did so expecting that our relationships would be tested in this season. And therefore, I knew how important it would be for us to remember the example we have in Christ of love and of humility. Because my brothers and sisters, here's what's so dangerous about Christian conflict. First of all, it weakens Jesus' body. Conflict among Christians is a self-inflicted wound. You may think you are injuring your brother or your sister, but you only injure yourself and all of us. When we are in conflict with one another, we are all affected for the worse. The second thing is that our conflict in the church brings shame to Jesus. Now, that may sound harsh, but it does. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm afraid that sometimes we don't realize that the opposite is also true. What will the world give Jesus when they see our selfish divisions instead of love and unity? What do they give him? 
So this morning, my beloved, my brothers and my sisters, what I want to do is I want to invite us into one prayer. One prayer with two applications. I want us to pray for the power to pursue peace. I want us to pray for the power to pursue peace. And the first way that this prayer works itself out is in preventing conflict before it starts. Preventing conflict before it starts. How do we do that? Well, it's very simple. It's just not easy. We act like Jesus. We imitate God's character. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul is pleading with the believers to do just that. Imitate Jesus in order that no opportunity for conflict or division may even arise. Would we have conflict truly if we take to heart what Jesus himself says in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Would we have conflict if we were to take to heart what Peter says in 1 Peter 3? All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Would we have conflict if we take to heart what James says in James chapter 1? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Would we have conflict if we take to heart what Paul says in Colossians 3? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The unity of the church, it begins with the Christ-like character of the believers within it. And this is the way we prevent conflict. The second way this prayer for the power to pursue peace applies is in reconciling with those whom we have conflict. Reconciling with those whom we have conflict. Because inevitably, we will fail to live out Christ-like character, and as a result, conflict will come. And when conflict comes, the way that some of us deal with it is to not deal with it. To sweep things under the rug and pretend that divisions don't exist. And that may feel like peace, but it's not peace. Others of us come at conflict with guns drawn, ready to fight, and that will likely only make matters worse or end in a casualty. And so instead of flight or fight, how should we reconcile? How should we reconcile with those in the church with whom we have conflicts? The same way God reconciled with us. 
the same way that God reconciled with us. How did he do it? He did it through the cross. God did not avoid the sin that separates us from him. He did not sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it head on, eyes wide open. Neither did God come at us with weapons drawn, but with radical sacrifice. Through Christ's death upon the cross, God forgives us and makes peace with us, and in so doing, he reconciles us to himself. And my brothers and sisters, it's through that same cross that we are able and must forgive and make peace. The cross is both the power for reconciliation and the place where it happens. This is, in fact, what it means to agree in the Lord. Perhaps you've heard of Don and Carol Richardson. The the Richardsons were Canadian missionaries who in the 1960s ministered in Papua New Guinea. And there they lived among the Sawi tribes who were primitive and even cannibalistic. Sawi villages were frequently at war with one another. Betrayal was held up as an ideal in their culture. They were known to befriend people of another village in order to later betray them, kill them, and eat them. The Richardsons ministered among these people, especially in two villages, Hainam and Kamur. But the Richardsons could not convince Haman and Kamur to stop fighting and killing one another. And so eventually they they gave up. They told the village leaders if they could not make peace with one another, they were going to leave and find somewhere else to minister. And not wanting these Westerners, the Richardsons, to leave, something amazing happened. A leader from Kamur brought one of the infants from his village and gave it to the leader of Hainam. And the leader of Hanum brought one of the infants from his village and gave it to the leader of Kamer. And when Don saw this, he was afraid that perhaps those infants were going to be hurt or even killed in the enemy villages. But the leaders of the villages, they promised Don that the infants would be protected so that peace could come. And when Don asked them why all of this was necessary, why give infants, the tribal leaders answered him, you've been urging us to make peace. Don't you know it's impossible to have peace without a peace child? And through that remarkable Sawi cultural image of the peace child, the Richardsons began to share the gospel with new power. They told the Sawi of how God sacrificed his only son, Jesus Christ, in order to reconcile his enemies to himself and to make peace. And through that gospel message, a great number of Sawi people came to faith in Christ. And my brothers and sisters, my beloved, Jesus Christ is our peace. Not just our peace with God, but our peace with one another. 
This is the gospel we profess. And it must be the gospel that we live. Let me end with Paul's prayer from Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen.